Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. I don't know, I usually do this, you're still up here. So thanks for picking that song. I love that one. I love that after we did communion, I'm sure he had it planned out. I know the spirit leads him in selecting music, but we sing this song about one people, one blood. And then you think about who you're sitting around. You got people here that don't think just like you, FYI. And it doesn't matter if you're white or black or brown, if you're you know, from the north, from the south, if you're Republican, Democrat, we're all one through the blood of Jesus Christ. Like everybody gets salvation the same way. And uh, so praise the Lord for that and just the symbolism of that. And I love seeing each other too when we do communion. Yeah, praise the Lord. You give the Lord a hand for that. Praise the Lord. He did it. So. Hey, today we're gonna keep going in our series we've been doing called Upside Down. And we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter five through seven. Today we're gonna be in Matthew chapter six. And so if you wanna get a head start, you can go there. Matthew chapter six. We're just gonna cover the first four verses in Matthew chapter six. We're really in the heart of this message at this point. And I was thinking about it in light of who we are and the worlds that we live in. We got a lot of choices, don't we? A Couple of you think that you have a lot of choices. This is an interactive church. In case you're a guest, you can feel free to talk back to me. Ask questions in the middle. That's fine. I might know the answer. I might not. I don't know. But say whatever you want to say. How many of you think you have a lot of choices in life? All right. We've got the quiet people. Raise their hand. As long as you're interacting. That's cool. Love that. Think about, I was thinking this week, like if you just drive through the drive-thru, all the combo meals, but then all the combos within the combo meals. And some of you, I don't really drink coffee. I met a young lady before the service. She works at Starbucks. You know how many options there are at Starbucks? You have to speak a special language to order there. Some of you don't think you're bilingual, but you speak coffee, like it's there. Vinta something, mocha, fizzy something, somethings, you got it. But think about this, what if you took someone from a third world that hunts for their food, that lives in a tent, to a grocery store, and just said something simple like, hey, can you go grab the pickles? (laughs) Which pickles? The dill pickles, the sweet pickles, the big pickles, the little pickles, the sandwich slice pickles, the sandwich slice pickles with wedges in them. Which kind of, what, the Harris Teeter brand? The regular brand, like which pickle? Or the cereal aisle? <laughs> Think about that. See, what is cereal? What is this even? And so I wanna play a little game with you as we get started this morning. I wanna ask you a question, what is better? And please interact with me. And so we've got an argument in our house about what the best cereal is. And so we're gonna put up here, just settle this at my home, which is better? <laughs> Honey Bunch of Oats, Frosted Mini Wheats, Lucky Charms. How many people say A? <laughs> Smart and reasonable people, I love you. Many people say B? That's my wife. How many people say C? The rowdy people. That's why they're at second service, too. They ate sugar for breakfast. Here we go. How about this question about decision making? Which is better, to go to bed early or to binge watch Netflix until 3 a.m.? A? How many A? How many B? I think we're divided on this. How about this? Which is better, to actually clean your kitchen? or to clean a small portion of your kitchen and spend the rest of your time balancing this broom to show on social media? How many of you A? How many of you B? Yeah, I saw you on social media this week, love it. This next one, don't answer out loud, but I want you to answer the question. Which is better, to win $100,000 for yourself? Think about all you could do, pay off debt, what you could buy. Or B, to give away $100,000 to someone else? Could be all kinds of different reasons why you do that. But which is better? Jesus says, he's quoted in the Bible in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, it's better to give than to receive. But we live in a world that's like, get what you can get. 
How much is enough? Just a little bit more. That'll be enough. Just, and it's always just a little bit more. And we're doing this series called Upside Down, but here's the thing about this series. Jesus isn't calling us to live upside down. The thing is, we live in a world that is upside down. We live in a world that says that things that are wrong are right, and things that are right are wrong. We live in a world that calls us to live the opposite of what God intends for us, so when God shows us as his followers, this is what it looks like to follow me, it seems upside down to us because we live in an upside down world. And what we've been talking about in this series is what it looks like to follow Jesus. What does real faith look like? And Jesus called us to some things that, according to this world, would be radical, but it's what's normal as a follower of Jesus. And today what we're looking at is generosity. He starts talking about some things that are real practical and how we live this stuff out. He's talked about the things that we believe. You've heard it said, but I say, now he's going to talk about the way that we live. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you've got your Bible, turn there. In case you're new to the church or maybe you just haven't been around or lots of stuff's happened since last time we met, let me just remind you of the context of what's going on. Jesus is teaching a message, probably his most famous sermon he ever preaches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. What happens is Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. He's literally healed every person in Galilee. Think about that. Every person, the entire area has been healed by Jesus. And then he goes up on a mountain and he sits down because that's what rabbis would do to teach at that time. And he says a word that would hit their felt needs. It's the Greek word makarios, blessed, true happiness. And he begins to describe the person who's truly happy in verses 1 through 12. We oftentimes call that section the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing. But what Jesus is talking about is a person who's experienced genuine spiritual transformation. The truly happy person has had their heart transformed at the inside level. It doesn't start with your behavior, the do's and don'ts. It starts with changing your heart. It's not about learning how to go to church and sing the hymns. It's not about learning when to stand up for the communion and when to sit down. It's not about going through the rituals of religion. It's about having your heart transformed, makarios. And then what happens? In verses 13 through 16, he gives us some identity statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And if you let your light shine before men, they see your good deeds, they glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so verses 1 through 12 is the spiritual transformation. Verses 13 through 16 is the gospel saturation. When you've experienced spiritual transformation, what happens is it impacts the world around you. And then in verses 17 through 20, he gives us the heart of the whole message. And he's given us the content there, and he's saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most righteous people of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, you can't even get into heaven. So he's got everybody's attention. And then in verses 21 through 48, he talks about what this real righteousness looks like. And he says this statement six times. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's giving is evidences of real righteousness according to the law. And he talks about how the law was taught. And he talks about how we need to seek radical reconciliation, have a radical view of marriage, that we'd love our enemies, that we'd turn the other cheek, that, that, that we would do, deal radically with sin in our own lives, and we all have sin in our lives. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, he transitions from the teaching of the law to the practice of the law. And he starts talking about money. People get funny at church when you talk about money. But God's going after your heart. Let's see what he says. Verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that 
your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus, after giving, you know, verses 21 through 48, this is what real righteousness looks like. And he's just said, hey, let your light shine so other people would see you. Then he says, but be careful, beware. It's a warning, that word. Be on guard, take heart. Kind of like if you ever bought a product, do you notice the warning label on it? No, this interactive church. No one's on that? No one's on that? Okay, I bought a chainsaw this year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I haven't used it yet. I said, it's got a great deal on it. And I was like, I could use this. And so I got it. And uh, one of the warnings on it, I don't know if this is universal, if they just put on the one I bought, I'm not sure. But it shows a picture of a guy with his hand on the blade, pulling the, the cord on the thing, and then a circle and a line through it. Like, don't do that. <laughs> you think? Like, what do you, th- how do you think they come up with the warning labels? Have you thought about that? Yeah, because it happened. It's not like somebody's at the, the chainsaw factory going, what's the dumbest thing anyone could do? Let's put a warning about that. It's like somebody from corporate sent an email that a picture of a mutilated hand. It's like, can somebody fix this? All right, circle, line through it. Don't do the stupidest thing you can think of because someone did it. Do you notice the warning that Jesus is giving in this passage? Beware, and he's talking about giving, but he doesn't say beware of greediness. Beware of stingy, hoarding, selfish. He assumes you're giving. He's talking to people who are giving, and he's talking about almsgiving. So let me tell you what that is. Just if you read the Old Testament, they had a tithe in the Old Testament that if you add it up, actually was about 23.5% of their income. We don't do that because we have taxes that we pay. And so we talk about 10% of our income. That was just general giving, required giving. It's like the, for Christians, it's the baseline of giving. It's not the goal, it's the starting point. And then there's almsgiving, which goes on top of that, which is when you see someone in need, you'd give them money. It was a big deal in Judaism. In fact, when we go through verses one through 18, we hit the three big practices of Judaism. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Jesus assumes that his followers will do all of these things But when he measures generosity, what we notice is he measures it different than many of us. Usually we just think about amounts. Like what, how much do we get? Am I generous or not? Based on how much I give, how much I consume. And and if you read even Christian articles about this, I was reading this week, there was a great article. If you're a millennial, you'd have loved some of the research. Millennials get dogged out in our society, by the way. And I'm not one, so let me defend them for a minute. We treat millennials like all they do is eat avocado toast and rack up student debt, okay? We act like they don't do anything, and somebody's in back like, yeah, whatever. Um, but do you know that studies show that millennials give far more money than boomers, Gen Xers, than any other generation? If you're measuring amounts, they're the most generous for sure. In fact, I read one study that was talking about billionaires and how much money they gave away. And it shows their net worth. Like if you look, you can find this stuff, just Google, you can find it. And it shows their net worth and then how much they're giving away. Some of them are trying to give away 50% of their wealth, some 90. There's, there's a couple guys that are some of the most wealthy people in the world. Their, their goal is to give away everything before they die. And so then people gauge them on a generosity. There's actually a generosity index that measures those things. Here's the deal. We always measure based on amount. God knows the amount. He knows the widow and it's two mites. He knows the, and he measures amounts. Read number seven in First Chron- Chronicles chapter 29. It talks about the amounts. But here he's going after motive. He's going to your heart. It's not just what you give. Why are you giving it? And that's how he just shows you who a genuinely generous person is. And so as I ask you, are you genuinely generous? What we see in this passage of scripture is at least three marks of genuine generosity. 
And the first one is this. There'll be our three points today. The first one is that the genuinely generous person gives, and it's a motive reason, to please God, to please their Father in heaven. A genuinely generous person isn't giving for the the people-pleasing, not to get the praise of people, but giving to please our Father who's in heaven. So the type of people have an audience of one. And what happens here in this passage at this moment, this is the twist in the sermon. You know how movies, like really good movies, always have a twist, right? Something you didn't expect. You're following the storyline, kind of know how it works. You know, plot, we meet the characters, builds up, then there's a problem. But what oftentimes happens in good movies is, oh, I didn't think the good guy was the bad guy. I thought this person died. Here they are in the story again. Like there's some twist that takes place. Jesus has just given us a twist. Think about what he said. Does this contradict what he said in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light so shine before men they would see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. And then he says here, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. This needs to be done in secret. Don't let anybody see this. So some people take this to mean that all giving needs to be anonymous. And they'll only give cash to the church. They don't want it of record. Anonymous gifts to anybody they try to help. It's not wrong to give anonymously. But we know that Jesus is not condemning all public giving. Otherwise, how do we know that Barnabas sells a field and gives the money to the apostles? That's in the, that's in the Bible, in the book of Acts, as a good example. How do we know the church of Macedonia is so generous? Second Chronicles chapter 8 and 9 shows that they gave out of their poverty they gave because of the joy. And that's where we oftentimes go to and go, be a cheerful giver. How do we know what they gave? And read number seven. Read First Chronicles chapter 29. It not only says that the leaders gave to the temple, it shows what they gave. So God knows the amounts and he makes it public in his word and, and the widow's might. She probably doesn't know. But Jesus knows and tells everybody for generations what she gave. It's not that every giving needs to be anonymous. Here's the problem. It's motive. What was the motive in verse 16 of chapter 5? Let your light so shine that they would see your good works. This is one of the good works. And glorify your father. It's not so they see you, not so that you get glory, but so that your father gets glory. Here, what he's condemning is this giving that he actually calls hypocrisy in verse 2. This giving that's given, and here's the key phrase, verse 1, in order to be seen by them. It's so that you get the praise. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And this is going to apply to prayer. It's going to apply to fasting. But here he's talking specifically about giving. In order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, you've got your reward. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Don't blow your own horn. As the hypocrites do. And so here he calls this giving. So this is, these are people that sometimes we would say, like, these are the most generous people. And he calls them hypocrites. <laughs> do you know what a hypocrite is? Do you know what a hypocrite was in Jesus' time? Like, it's got a lot of connotations today. We have a lot of religious language that we read into it. All a hypocrite was when Jesus used that word in this sermon was an actor. It's someone who puts on a show and plays to an audience. It's somebody who wears a mask because they didn't have the special effects we have. They didn't have the makeup studios and artists that we have. And so people would put a mask on, they'd play a part. Isn't it ironic that the Oscars do not have the greatest hypocrite award? Some of you are like, well, they do actually. No, just kidding. Uh, we give the greatest actor. We don't give away the greatest hypocrite because the word has taken on so much meaning. And what most of us think that hypocrite means is simply this. Somebody who says one thing does something else. It's the, you know, the pastor who preaches against adultery while he's having an affair. It's the Sunday school teacher that talks about integrity and then stealing money from people on Monday, doing shady business deals. He's got a hedge in his bets on everything. And nobody likes that person. That's one form of hypocrisy. 
Jesus uses the word hypocrite multiple times throughout this sermon. And he talks about different types of hypocrites. And so to, to, to get out of your mind that there's just one type, I've brought a few different masks here today. And so we'll, we'll just show these to, to visually give you a, a reminder of what I'm talking about. We usually think about this is kind of a, just a general masquerade mask. This is pretense, I put something to cover up, I put out my best foot forward, I'm trying to show you how good I am, but then when you really get to know me, you realize it's something different. That's the kind of hypocrite that we almost all hate. It's the kind of hypocrite that Jesus talks about when he talks to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he says you're like whitewashed tombs, you clean up the outside, but on the inside you're like dead men's bones. What we see is not what we get, is what they're pointing out. And most of us, that's all we think of for hypocrisy. But there's more types. There's at least two other types in the Sermon on the Mount. The next one we're going to see specifically when, in Matthew chapter 7 when it talks about the person who has a plank in their own eye but they see the speck in someone else's eye and they're judgmental. That's a self-righteous person. And so self-righteous person is fueled by, by pride. And so I brought a large mask for that. So that big head, get it? Big head, pride. And so I'll put this on here. I bet your pastor's never worn a panda head before. There you go. And D.A. Carson talks about this. So I'll continue to preach wearing this for you today. D.A. Carson says this, quote will be on the screen. This is the second type of hypocrite. After talking about the first type that we all know about, he says, another kind of hypocrisy, the hypocrite is puffed up with his own importance and self-righteousness, blind to his own faults. And it's hard to see with this, so this is a great illustration. (laughs) Blind to his own faults, he may be genuinely unaware that he is hypocritical, even though he is very harsh toward other people and their sins. And so I bet you've never had a pastor read a D.A. Carson quote with a panda head on before. It's the first time. You guys have gotten to experience it. It's amazing. But here's the deal with that. The reason why I put the big head on, and I could hardly see, is that's a dangerous hypocrisy when you become arrogant like that. Because other people might be able to see your sin, the harshness, the way you judge other people, but you don't see it. That's a dangerous hypocrisy, but none are as dangerous as the one we're talking about in this passage because the person doesn't see it and neither do other people. And so I brought another mask, a very sneaky mask. You need spidey senses to pick up what I'm putting down here. And so this type of person that wears this mask, they actually think that they're giving to meet the other person's need. They think that they're giving on behalf of God. And the person who's receiving the gift they're not gonna complain because their needs are being met. In fact, they're probably gonna thank the giver. They're probably gonna praise their generosity, which just feeds the hypocrisy even more. I'll read you another quote from another Bible commentator. Bible Expositor's Commentary says this. This third type of hypocrite deceives himself into thinking he's acting for the best interest of God and man and also deceives onlookers. The needy are unlikely to complain when they receive large gifts and their gratitude may flatter and thus bolster the giver's self-delusion. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. When you give like that, when you go serve at the soup kitchen and then you put it on Instagram and somebody clicks like, that's your reward. And you're not getting any reward in heaven. When you're giving as a people pleaser, which is what this really is, people pleasing is one of the most dangerous forms of hypocrisy that fills our churches. Here's why. Because we'll never confront you. Because you're doing things for us. You get things done around the church. You seem like a servant. Everyone tells you how great you are and that's why you're doing it, then you've received your reward. And he's talking about it here in the context of money. But here's the problem with being a people pleaser. Before you start to defend yourself and think about all these things in your mind, 
That's what the hypocrites did, the, the Pharisees. Jesus confronts it continually. In John chapter 12, he says this, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, talking about Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would be put out of the synagogue. Then it says in verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's a, a story, you want a, a, a big, huge illustration of this? Acts chapter 12, there's this guy named Herod. He comes out, politically what's going on is the people have been being starved and he comes out and gives a speech about giving them food. <laughs> and they say, he's a, this is the voice of a God, not a man. They don't love him. They love what he's doing for them. That's how fickle the praise of people is, just so you know. They don't really love you. You're just doing something for them. They love themselves. And God strikes that guy down dead. When you're a people pleaser, you're at odds with God. You're at war with God. Because what ends up happening is you're stealing what rightly belongs to him. And he says in Isaiah 42, 8, I will not give my praise to another. You're in battle with him. But what you see in the Bible throughout is the people that are truly free, free to do things that some people might think is really weird, are people that fear God more than they fear man. Listen, we've all got parts of this in us. We're all glory thieves. We're all people pleasers. We don't care about what other people think about us. But there's this battle that happens in the heart of a believer. And what Jesus is calling us to here is to fear God greater than we fear man. That's why he says things like, well, what, can, what can man do to you? Kill you? God can throw you into hell. Fear him. And so you get stories of guys like Noah. Read Noah's story in Hebrews in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11. It says that he built a boat. It's not raining. He's building a boat. You don't think his friends made fun of him? And then it says, out of reverent fear of God. Abraham, he's in that chapter. Just read chapter 11. You want people of faith? Chapter 11, Abraham leaves his land and follows a God he's never met, never heard from before, who says to him, I'm gonna give you a child. Incredibly personal, but also global. That's how he works in our lives. You don't think that any of Abraham's friends said, hey, bro, you're old. You're not having any kids. I don't know what's in that canteen you're drinking, but you ain't having any kids. But he goes. Why? That's the beauty of Hebrews 11. It tells us because he was looking to a city whose builder was God. He had an eternal focus. Listen, if you have an earthly focus, you will have earthly rewards. If you have an eternal focus, you will have eternal rewards. You've got earthly goals, earthly rewards. Eternal goals, eternal rewards. You see, you want to see a conversion of a people pleaser? Read the story of Peter through the Gospels. Peter's a guy, he, he, he curses God, says he doesn't, doesn't know who Jesus is. This is a guy who's been walking with Jesus. I'll go with you to death. I'll do anything you want me to do. When a little girl comes up to him in the high priest's courtyard. But then he weeps and he repents. And then God uses him to stand before thousands of people and say, you killed God. It's because of your sins that Jesus was on the cross. And that's true for each one of us in this room, by the way. He, could, he was risking his life when he said, nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear they're okay. You're good enough. God's gonna be gracious. Everything's cool. But he gets up and he says, it was your sin that nailed him to the cross. But he offers you life, but you've gotta repent. Because he was a guy who repented. He repented of his people pleasing. He decided he feared God more than he feared man. Look at Jesus' example. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Read verse two of John chapter 13. It says he knew who he was and where he was going. And you know what else the gospels say about Jesus? He only did what the Father told him to do. So he's able to get low. He's able to be humble because he knows who he is. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. 
Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify, not you, your Father. Live for the pleasure of your Father. It's the first mark of genuine generosity. The second mark of genuine generosity is it lives for the Father's rewards. Genuinely generous people seek the Father's reward. In fact, look at these verses again, verses one through four. Three times in four verses we see the word reward, but it's all over the passage. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward, there's the first time if you underline in your Bible, from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, it's assumed you'll give, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And so there's a reward. Truly I say to you, they've received their, second time the word is, reward. Verse three. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Listen, your hands don't have brains, okay? They don't know stuff. He's not talking very literally here. He's talking very figuratively. And he's talking about out of your heart, a spontaneous giving. If you're so spontaneous, you don't even remember. You just, you're doing it. It's flowing out of your heart so that your giving may be in secret and that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times in four verses, we see the word reward. And when I see reward, there's two questions that automatically come to mind. One, is it wrong to do something for a reward? Seems kind of crass, right? Like, I'm gonna give so that I can get. And then the other one is, what's the reward? <laughs> what are they? And so the first question is, some of you might think to yourself, like, my motive, Jesus is really using this as a motivator to give rewards? My motive, shouldn't it be love? Well, read 1 Corinthians 13. It says that you can give even your life. And if you don't love, do you know what it says? You don't gain anything. So yeah, love has to be a part of it. And some of us think, well, I should give because Jesus, he gave so, so much for me. For the Father, he gave his son, John three sixteen. What was given to me because of the gospel, then I should overflow. That's true. Those are both true things. Reward's not separate from those things, but reward is in addition to that and is used continually as a carrot, as a fuel, as a motivator to motivate us to give. And so if you say to yourself, I'm not gonna give because of reward, you're cutting out a whole bunch of what Jesus teaches. In fact, the New Testament as a whole let me read you a few verses in the New Testament. Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. In Ephesians, he says it like this, Ephesians 6, 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, verse 41 the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. In about a month, we're gonna to get to this part of the sermon. This is still in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. There's a verse in Luke chapter 16 that's the, that you talk about upside down. Listen to this. Usually we use people to get money. Jesus tells a whole story in Luke chapter 16 about using money to win people into the kingdom. And then he says this verse, Luke chapter 16, verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's filthy mammon, if you got the KJV. Money. So that when it fails, in other words, it will, they, the people, may receive you into eternal dwelling. These are the people that are gonna welcome you into heaven based on how you used your money to impact them for eternity. And so 
there are rewards. It's not wrong. But what are the rewards? And as you look through the Bible, you see glimpses of what the rewards are. One is right here. In fact, I love this passage. There's a passage in 1 Thessalonians. You can look it up on your own where Paul's talking to the Thessalonians and he says to them, you are my crown. We talk about crowns we're gonna receive in heaven. You are my crown. You are my joy. It's the people. One of the rewards in heaven are people. The people that we impact here with our words, with our talents, with our money, with our time are gonna be the people that are our people in heaven. They're gonna be the ones that welcome you into heaven. The lives that you, people you've brought to Christ through the way that you used your money. The people that, that you've shared, you served with your gifts and it's impacted them for eternity. That's gonna be your reward. Some of your relationships. Our positions seem to be different based on how we live here. There's a verse that gets quoted in funerals all the time. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? No one ever reads the second part of the verse. Let me read it to you. It's in Luke chapter 19. It's in verse 17. It says this. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful with very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Then a couple verses later, verse 19, it says you'll have authority over five cities. So some people are gonna be ruling over 10 cities, some people are gonna rule over five cities, which tells us a few things about heaven, by the way. It means that heaven is not going to be just one big church service where angels sing and Jesus preaches. Like, that'd be awesome, but for 80 million years, I might be like, what time is it? Right? Like, we're gonna have jobs. We're gonna have roles. Everybody's role isn't going to be the same. But we're gonna live in a kingdom where we don't envy, we don't covet, we're not jealous. Like, I'm gonna be, if you rule over 10 cities and I rule only over five cities, or maybe I just live in one of the five cities and somebody rules over five and somebody's ruling over 10, I'm going, man, that's awesome for them. But it's not gonna all be the same and how we live here is gonna impact what theirs like. I remember when I first came to Christ and I, I learned about rewards in heaven. I was like, so what is that? I was like, John 14 says that he prepares a place for us. Is it like, if I don't do anything, I live in a shack? And then if I do a bunch of stuff, I get like a mansion? Like, how does this work? Is there like a check at Judgment Day? I don't know. And then I read, I read some guys, I would have never thought of this on my own, so I have to tell you who they are. Jonathan Edwards was the first guy to write this stuff that I saw. And uh, Randy Alcorn, John Piper, guys, you can look this stuff up. They talk about that one of the rewards in heaven is going to be how we experience the joy of Christ. Now, we're all gonna be fully happy, by the way. It's not like you're gonna be sad and upset that somebody else is enjoying more, but not everybody's gonna have the same capacity. Some of us are gonna have a greater capacity to enjoy the reward, which is Jesus. And how we live here is going to impact all of that. Positions, people, our capacity. But do you, do you live for the eternal rewards? Because if you've got earthly goals, you'll have earthly rewards. And they will fail. But if you live for eternity, there's eternal rewards. How you use your money here impacts how you spend there. And then not only that, the third mark that we see in this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter six is that genuinely generous people see real needs. Genuinely generous people see real needs. And think about that Matthew 5, 16. The people would see our lives and it would reflect our Father who's in heaven. Think about our Father. You wouldn't be a follower of Jesus if he didn't see your real need. He sees our needs. He's a God who sees. In fact, that's the first title that's given to him by people in the Bible. There's a woman, her name's Hagar. She gets hurt by the father of our faith, Abraham. We're all sinners. Some of you in this room have hurt other people in this room. Yep, because we're sinners. You put two sinners together, somebody gets hurt. Abraham hurt Hagar. He used her, threw her out, and then she's hurt. 
And she cries out, not Abraham's awesome because he made reconciliation, but God, you are a God who sees, Genesis 6. We read Psalm 139, that he knows our thoughts before we think them. He sees every deed. We see in this passage in verse four, he sees our giving in secret. He sees. If he didn't see, you wouldn't be saved. Because he looked at us and he saw our need for a savior. I love one of the passages in Mark chapter nine where Jesus is teaching and he looks out. I think about looking out and seeing some of you. See some of you are scientists and inventors and you know, uh, consultants, a bunch of you are consultants. That means I don't know what you do. Some of you are nurses, teachers, business owners. Jesus looked out at a crowd like that. And it says he saw sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. William Barclay says that harassed and helpless means literally a woman who's been ravaged and left at the road dead. And I think to myself all the time, he saw people dress nice like I see people dress nice today. He saw people that are moms and he saw people that are brothers and people that are friends. And, but he saw their needs. Can you imagine what it would be like for us if we could see people the way Jesus sees people for one day? Can you imagine out in the lobby if when everybody walked in the door today, you just stood there, maybe you stood up by the TV monitor there that's playing the service, and you, start, and you saw the heaviness that some people walk in with, the grief, the financial pressures, the struggle in marriages. Instead of seeing them like dress nice, and, and I'm not saying they're hypocrites, but they're smiling, because what else are they gonna do? You can come in crying? But you saw what was really going on? It's implied here that we would see these needs. In verse two, it says, when you give, of course you're gonna give. It's assumed you're gonna give to the needy. How do you give to the needy if you don't see the needs? So you have to see the needs. Do you see people's needs? That means you gotta take our eyes off ourselves. It means you gotta go look past just outward stuff that's going on. I mean, sometimes you gotta ask questions. It means you gotta spend time. We got needs all over our city. We got refugees in our city. It's not just watch the news and see what's happening in Texas. Oh, kids are getting separated from their parents and you're for that or against that? Who's for that? You're, of course you're against that. There's refugees in this city. Do you see that? Do you know that? It's been in the newspaper. You know, just come across. World Relief is a great ministry if you want to learn more about it. Do you know you can give $75 to World Relief and put a kid through summer camp, get them ready for school next year? Think about coming to, think about if you got dropped in Germany, if you got dropped in some other country, this would be China, some different language. You got to go to school? Do you see that? Do you see that's around here? Teachers, teachers got some unique skills. There's a lot of them in our church. World Relief's always looking for teachers. It's homeless people that your kids go to school with. Riley Rescue Mission says 4,300 students in Wake County schools are homeless. It's 4,300 kids in our schools. Did you know? Do you even know some of those needs are going on in class around here? But needs, sometimes needs are like, I was thinking this week about how Jesus says, that what you do unto the least of these you do unto me? And like, I could, my propensity would be like, well, what's the greatest need in our city? But who are the people God's already bringing across my path? Who's the least that day? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your kids. Do you see? I heard a story this week. I was on social media. And it was a, it was a woman. Her name was Gina. And Gina was a paramedic. She was talking about being in the ambulance. How she heard some ruckus behind her ambulance. She got out to see what it was, and there was this grown man who was digging through the garbage. He was a heroin addict, homeless. And I think I, I might have been like, for the safety of, hey, get out of here, you can't be here. For wickedness in my heart, right? But she said, I thought to myself, what causes a grown man to dig through the garbage? Everybody has a story, right? Everybody's got some story. And so this guy, his name was Will, started to share his story. His wife had died, they had been married for 13 years, 
and he felt desperate and started self-medicating, eventually got on heroin, lost his house, lost his job, became homeless, his wallet got stolen, he didn't have any food. He's digging through the garbage. She gives him some boots and a jacket. And then he says to her, can you give me $7? Explains the story about how his wallet got stolen and he needs $7 in order to get through the welfare system to get an ID so that he can get a job. My skeptical heart, I might have been like, I'm not giving a heroin addict any cash. She gives him seven bucks because it's not about you. You help you see the need? She gives him $7 and he tells a story about how that $7 got him out from underneath a bridge. He got involved in a Christian discipleship group, came to know Christ. He came back 14 months later looking for her. She came out of the bathroom. There's this guy standing there crying. Looks totally different. He's been eating. His life was radically changed by $7. No, not by $7, because she noticed him. Do you see needs? Do you see needs? I got an email from a lady yesterday. She had come to Christ at our church. Somebody just invited her. The power of an invitation, by the way. Somebody invited her to come to church. Um, didn't know Christ. Had grown up going to church. Learned how to sing the hymns. Do all the stuff. And then... She heard one sermon that made her think, I don't really know Jesus. I just know religion. Trusted Christ. She got baptized about three or four years ago. Her kids got baptized. But she told this story about how her husband, who was a professional athlete when they were coming to our church, had lost, you know, got out of being a professional athlete, didn't lost his identity, was a mess, and she got in a fight with him one day. She said, you need help. And he said back to her, and you're not helping. And here she was, she's the one who had Jesus. The need's right in her house. So the next day she got two Bibles out and they started reading the Bible together. A couple months later he said, will you tell me how to trust Christ? And he trusted Christ. There are leaders in their church now. They live in Pennsylvania. But do you see the needs even in your own home? So we've got to see these needs as we think about having an impact for eternity, pleasing our Father. And then when we give out of that, that's real generosity. It's not just about the amounts. It's that we're giving to please him and we're seeing real needs in others because we're trying to have an impact for eternity. So I'll ask you the question I asked at the beginning. Better to give or receive? Don't have to answer. We answer by how we live. 